Hey everybody, Jeff here with the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. And here we go. We've got another great guest appearance tonight with the author and historian James A. McQuiston. He has written several books about Oak Island and talking about the Knights Templar and all of that. And I tell you, we are going to have a lot of fun with Jim tonight. We're going to be talking about all of his stuff and his brand new book that's, that's out now. And we're going to get started with that right now. This is Robert Clotworthy, the narrator of The Curse of Oak Island. And I have a question for you. Could it be that you are listening to The Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream? This is a top pocket find, mate, for sure. All right, we are live. Hey, welcome everybody, and thank you for coming here tonight. And as you can see, we have our special guest tonight, James McQuist. And James, thank you for coming on tonight. Well, thank you for having me. This is such a fun show to be on and a fun <laughs> to watch, too. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um, I did want to say real quick that uh, uh, we have uh, we had tonight scheduled to be uh, my co-host uh, was going to be Jack Campbell. And Jack um, had a, a medical procedure that was done uh, last week, and he has he's having some complications um, so he is not able to be here with us tonight. So prayers are out for Jack. That all goes well. We miss him and he will be back. Uh, we'll get him back on here. But uh, so, you know, just wanted to let you know, we uh, Jack is a part of this show and always has been. And so uh, hopefully everything will get uh, taken care of and he'll be back with us very, very soon. So prayers for Jack and uh, we'll see him very, very soon. Uh, hopefully coming up here. All right. So. Let's get started. Jim, uh, you've, you've written, and I go back and forth between Jim and James. I'm so used to calling you Jim. Um, but you have written several books about Oak Island. And, you know, I've got a couple of them right back here behind me that are fantastic. Uh, Oak Island and New Ross. And then also, um, I forgot the name of it, uh, Oak Island Nights uh, that is back there. And uh, another fantastic book. Now you have a new one that has just been released on Amazon just in the last week. And I wanted to ask you, it's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it's curse codes and secret societies. And what, what got you the inspiration to do another book about Oak Island? Well, uh, first I got to tell you that I just barely made it here cause I was in the makeup trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my study where I've written all my books and right. I, my library up behind my head here. I got everybody's book in there. Um, so it, just about every time I've written a book, first two books, I didn't even plan on writing. The Oak Island team prompted me to write them because I'd written so many emails and we were afraid everything was going to get lost. But I always think that's the last one. Then something comes along and by the time I did Oak Island and New Ross, which was, I believe, the last time I was on your show, I was yep. pretty sure I was done. It wears you out. I mean, you know, writing a book and the research and the proofreading and getting proof from the company and all that. So at the end of uh, the the 2021 season, uh, I think it was a Maddie Blake show, and they're sitting around a table and and Rick made the comment, uh, when you ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how, I think James, above all others, really deals with that. Mm -hmm. Tell you what, James is not giving up. Well, he didn't know that I had already given up. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So then I 
he sent me an email uh, for Christmas. So he doesn't email much at all, but he sent me an email Christmas and thanked me for my work and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he made the comment, uh, what we really need is an X that marks the spot. And so I kind of, after thinking about that for a couple of days, I thought, was that a challenge? Uh, you know, a veiled challenge or whatever? And Probably. Well, I'm not on the island every day. And if I just, uh, the only records I would be able to access from 1795 when the money pit was found uh-huh. would be known records that have been in everybody else's books. There's, you know, 20 or 30 books about it. Right. Yeah. What would I add? You know, I might be able to to uh, formulate it in a linear fashion better or something, but I wouldn't really add much. So then it just struck me, well, the ultimate X that marks the spot was the 90-foot stone because it was right smack in the middle of the money pit lying mm-hmm. down, and it was down 90 foot, which we don't really know if that was the end of the pit or if that was halfway down the pit. Right. That was an object that marked the middle of the pit. So I thought, well, uh, what if I just look into that stone some more and maybe there's something that we've missed through the years, you know? So uh, this is the first book that's actually talked very much about what happened after 1795, because almost everything was history leading up to my theory right. about mm-hmm. the next baronet. So um, I, the first way I approached it was I just started looking for stories of other buried stones. And it was just unbelievable. But I found out that there was a phenomenon, an absolutely real phenomenon, where stones and or uh, metal tablets scratched or carved stones were buried. Uh-huh. And there's been 1,600 of them found, mostly really? in Rome, Greece, Rome, the Middle East, and the British Isles. Wow. 1,600 of them found. That's amazing. Yeah, and uh, in fact, the very last one that was found was just found in 2019, and they just this March, uh, just two months ago, finally got it translated, and and it was done at a university with experts in language, all that, and uh, uh, it followed the pattern of these other stones that I was finding, and um, if you want to put up slide one, it's kind of It'll kind of help. This was found in Egypt. Uh, it's from seven or 800 BC, somewhere in that area. And it wow. was what they called a curse stone. And it cursed anybody who would try to take that land away from that pharaoh or whoever owned it. And that was found buried underground. And it's got carvings on it. If you zoom right up to the top, you'll see some, uh, uh, you'll see some, characters not that they match the 90 foot stone but they're the same type of thing situation mm-hmm. so uh then i found out about the uh curse uh tablets they call them cursed tablets because they can be out of stone or metal so actually slide two shows a um one out of metal scratched in metal and this oh, was wow. the mm-hmm. this particular one uh was addressed to uh, the goddess Minerva and all the ones that were found in this well were all addressed to her. What uh-huh. I found that even though they call them a cursed tablet, they quite often start out with a supplication to some type of spiritual being. Yeah, yeah. God, it can be one said, 
I conjure up holy beings and holy names. Really? Uh, they found uh, that they just found in uh, 2019, the first words were cursed, cursed, cur cursed, cursed, cursed by God. And then the rest of the tale went on. Uh, so yeah. finding a God, the name of God or the, um, uh, 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 you know, assigned to a goddess or to holy beings, or whatever, was a common uh, phenomenon too. So it was, it's an absolute phenomenon that tablets were buried. And it's also an absolute phenomenon that many of them start out with a supplication to God or some holy being. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I didn't know yet where I was going to go with all this. Uh, but uh, okay. what I eventually found a, uh, well, you know, if you go to slide three, this okay. is the, Voynich code. <clears throat> and just to show you how hard it is to break a code, this has never been broken and it's been around since the 1800s and it's been oh, wow. studied hundreds of thousands of dollars in uni different universities. Uh, one man spent three years of his life trying to break it. They, they had a mammoth computer system try to break it. They can't break the code. It's, I just got this off a screenshot. It was a show about it on history the other day. And uh, so, you know, I knew that it was an ominous task to try to break a code, but I had no idea what code, what codex I was going to use at the time. Right. But I found a code. And if you flip to the next uh, slide, uh, this is the very last letter that Mary Queen of Scots wrote just before she was executed. She wrote it to her brother-in-law, who was the king of France at the time. And uh, it, one thing unique about this letter is she just hand-wrote it right out. But most of her letters had a code on them. And that code has, uh, because it's always difficult to say the whole name, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh -huh. started calling that code the MQS code for Mary, Queen of Scots. So... Uh, when they refer to the MQS code or when I refer to it, that's what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, what I found was that uh, there's one of her code sheets. There was one of her code sheets online. And so I studied that and I saw that there were some symbols that matched those on the 90 foot stone. Really? So I, you know, was involved with uh, several places in Scotland, particularly the society of antiquaries, but, that gives me access to the Scottish National Museum and the Scottish National Records. So I'm emailing everybody and his brother and his sister trying to find out who knows anything about Mary Queen of Scots. And I actually emailed with some so-called experts on it, but nobody knew where the code was. This went on for three months, three months of waiting for emails and writing emails. And finally, somebody said, you know, you're looking in the wrong place because she was arrested in England. So the codes probably reside with the British Museum or uh, the, the National Archives. Uh -huh. I eventually found them at the National Archives. And they had 400 papers that she had written that when she was arrested, they confiscated. Now, I probably should explain for a minute who she was, but she was the daughter of uh, James V of Scotland. And okay. uh, he, when he died, they spirited her out of scotland because a protestant movement was afoot and she, she was catholic her mother was french so they took her to france 
she ended up marrying the uh, the uh, heir to the throne of France, and he only served for a few months, and then he died. So she was technically the queen of France and the queen of Scotland, both, At the but same time, yeah. took over the throne. Mm-hmm. So she was, by law, she should have been the queen of France, but she sort of got ousted. But she went back to Scotland and she fought a lot of battles there, uh, you know, trying to keep the old way going. And uh, eventually she escaped to England because Queen Elizabeth was her cousin. And she thought Queen Elizabeth would protect her. Right. So uh, I don't think Mary, Queen of Scots, had anything to do with Oak Island. So I don't want people to walk away from this thinking that. I look at her as a turning point between the Knights Templar era and mm-hmm. Freemasons era. And I have my reasons for thinking that. I'm sorry, but, the Knights, I, you go, you faded there for just a second. The Knights Templar era and the what? And the Freemasons era. Oh, okay. And uh, because there were people connected on either side of her to those two organizations. Right. Her son was the first uh, overall king of Scotland and England and Ireland, who was James I. He granted Nova Scotia to my chief suspect, Sir William Alexander. Uh, his son was Charles I. He knighted all the knights baronet uh, uh-huh. up till his, his beheading. Her grandson, Charles II, uh, knighted uh, the last knight baronet to ever receive land in Nova Scotia, which was Thomas Temple. And her other grandson, James II, uh, knighted Sir William Phipps. So all four of those descendants of hers were intimately involved with Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought, well, you know, could that be the code? So uh, eventually they got them scanned in. I said, can you go, have, have you ever gone through them and pull out all code? No, we haven't. They've just been sitting back there. I said, well, could you do that? And they said, well, this is going to cost you. We don't work for free. And I said, well, I understand. I'll pay. Mm-hmm. So they pulled them out. There were hundred and four wow. pieces of paper with codes on them. Wow. So I said, how can I get digital copies? And they said, well, we don't have them digitized, but you can pay us to digitize them. So I ended up with the first and world's first, and maybe I'm still that way, uh, a collection of her 104 code sheets. Wow, that's fantastic. Unless, unless they sold them to somebody else after I bought them. But uh, so, uh, oh, my gosh. You, that's you really get- cool or sheets of paper that are mass confusion, you know, and so some of them were uh, numbered codes, so I knew they didn't have anything to do with the stone, because there are no numbers on the stone, right. and some of them were in French, which I don't, I can read a little bit of French, but I'm not that versed at it, and I just moved them aside. Uh, some of them were just a small amount of code, like she might have written an entire letter to somebody, but down in the corner she put a little code, so uh-huh. I through all those because I had plenty to work with. I ended up with about 60 sheets that had they were actual codexes. So I started comparing, you know, things from the 90-foot stone to to her code. So if you go to uh, oh, the first first thing I have to say is that, you know, a lot of people don't think the 90-foot stone even existed. And so I spent quite a bit of time in the beginning of the book uh, providing what evidence there was and 
one of the best pieces of evidence was a newspaper article from 1864, which said that the stone was still there to be viewed at John Smith's home. Now, you can imagine in a, a small area with maybe only one newspaper, and if they put that in there, people are going to go there, and right. if the stone's not there, they're going to be disappointed. So. Right. I don't think the newspaper would lie about that. And that's the same story that's been told right along. Uh, right. So, um, but I uh, provided quite a bit of evidence. And, you know, one of the questions is, well, why wasn't there any uh, write-up or any photographs? Well, there were no newspapers when it was found, number one. Right. And photography, glass plate photography, didn't even come around until about 1850. So, yeah. Uh, shortly before those news articles started appearing in those newspapers right. and personal photography didn't come around till the end of the, up to like 19 or uh, 1898 or something like that. So there wasn't just some simple way for these hundreds or thousands of people that went right. to John Smith. They couldn't just take a photograph of it, you know? Yeah. In fact, he had a tea house there uh, for people to have tea because uh, this is when the temperance movement was just starting. Okay. It wasn't prohibition, but, uh, so they kind of, you know, gravitated to tea houses. Uh, what they were drinking, we don't know. But uh, <laughs> uh, and I found out from uh, Charles that there was another tea house on Oak Island, out on Isaac's Point. Uh, that they know that for fact, but they haven't located the, they haven't found the foundation or anything yet. Wow! I see. That's the first I've heard of that. That's yeah. interesting. You know, people were going out there and they were hanging out and drinking tea and talking about it and all that. So anyway, that, that was my first step to convince myself, you know, is the stone real and all that. So if you now if you do go to uh, slide, oh, well, first of all, I wanted to tell you how difficult it was to get there. I got the call to go in July, or maybe I got it to call in June, but I was going to go up in July. Well, that was the height of the COVID restrictions. It was just crazy. I had to get a test in the U.S. Yep. Crossed the border, had to get a test in Canada. It took me an hour and a half to cross the border and another half hour to get the test. Um, I got up to uh, Oak Island and I had to get a third test. So by the time I got that third test, I knew I didn't have COVID. Right. <laughs> I was just going to tell you how they created their bubble there. Uh, uh, they, As you cross the causeway, there was a little station there and a lady had a a temperature gauge, one of those that they put at your forehead. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And if you pass that little test, you would go right to a nurse's station. They had a building with a nurse in it, and you would get a genuine COVID test, and then you would sit and wait in the chair until they told you you were okay. Right. Then you could go on up and mix with everybody, and you didn't need to wear masks or anything like that. So, uh, and Laird, I think it was, told me that they get tested twice a week. They wow. did. They got tested twice. Had to, yeah, understandable. Yeah, you know, so um, so they all felt pretty safe. So once you were up there, uh, you know, you could walk around like the world was normal again. Yeah. And But it wasn't normal because um, I could sense a lot of frustration. And I thought it was due to COVID and all the stress of all the steps you had to go through and all that. And so I was ready office that but after my first uh war room meeting which was about my code as everybody was leaving rick was standing on the back or on the front porch of the 
of the uh, war room, and uh, he told me about the uh, Mi'kmaq ah. back and how they got shut down. So I must have got there right after that happened. Oh yeah, because there was a pall over the entire island. And he told me that Marty and Craig were frustrated enough to head back to Michigan, and uh, uh, he wasn't too happy himself. And uh, uh, and you know. I understand their frustration, and I'm sure they realize the same thing I do, that they've said on the show that there were artifacts. Right. And, and I happen to know what some of them are, but they're not big. But uh, it isn't just that pottery, but it's still small stuff. Right. But <clears throat> it could be there was a Mi'kmaq village there, or it could be that it was a trading post because... Uh, an explorer named Denny's was in Mahone Bay in the early 1630s, and he said that the Mi'kmaq would bring beaver pelts down from the lakes up around New Ross, and wow. they would trade them in Mahone Bay. So that would be a very likely thing to have right on the end of the island, because that's like the closest island to those Gold River, particularly. Right. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, where they could just pull their canoe up right there and do their trading and then leave again. Or the third option is that they just got washed in with the tide or with a storm. Uh -huh. But the only way anybody's going to know is to do a genuine archaeological dig. And so, obviously, that has to be done. Whether Oak Island did it or whether the Mi'kmaq have their own archaeologist or the, or the province does it, whatever, that should be done. And I think everybody agrees that. It's frustrating. <laughs> is that should be done yeah and i remember laird had actually said you know we had him on the show not that long just a few weeks ago and laird actually said that the pottery that they had shown on the tv show that he found in the southeast corner of the yeah. swamp that piece of pottery that looked like a dirt clod to me but he yeah. would know because he's an archaeologist but he said that was the least of what they found but that was what they chose to show on the tv show and he said yeah. that was actually the least of what they had found um, and it was, you're right. You know, that the, we got the sense of it when we saw it on TV, we got the sense of this foreboding over everyone about the whole situation. You were there firsthand to actually feel it from everybody in person. We could feel it watching it on the show. Uh, but now you're there and you get to witness that. Uh, and it really was, and I can understand their frustration really. Well, the other three items that Rick told me about were, were unmistakably, native or yeah. whatever word you want to use uh, right. and that they like first nations first nation people but yep. there, there would be no question about them but again they were all smaller items and they may have found much more than that because he oh. wasn't you know he wasn't there to tell me everything you know uh -huh. but i do have to tell you that uh after that meeting and he was so filled with frustration and I think that might have been what led to it. I'm, I don't know. But he asked me if I wanted to come over to his house for a while that night. And uh, he said, I'll pick you up because you'll never find it. Because it is kind of hidden away. It's down a kind of a dirt road type situation. It's a beautiful home. but It's uh, uh, not something you'd even think to turn down that road. So he Which picked me up. He needs to have something like that. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. And... Uh, so he picked me up and we went down there and he showed me his, he had literally had a pallet full of Dr. Pepper in the garage. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many a few <laughs> bottles anyway, 
Um, but he told oh, me it was hilarious because of all the sugar. He said, "I'm I'm honestly trying to cut back." But and he has a little work wood workshop in there, and he does uh, some woodworking of all related mostly to Oak Island. Um, he promised me some type of a thing, but I haven't received it yet. But uh, I know he's been busy. But um, so then we sat in his uh, dining room and. Oh my gosh, he just talked and talked and I talked and it went for three hours. And wow. I learned so much about him and so much about the island that I was in awe of the fact that he would even tell me a lot of this stuff. But I was calm and everything, but um, I, I really don't, I was just like absorbing. I was like a sponge or something. I don't want to miss anything. So I'm not going to yeah. think or say anything. I'm, you know, that's but how anyway. all of us would be if we got that opportunity. I can yeah. tell you. <laughs> it was literally like the mouse in the corner. I mean, it literally was, you know. And yep. so uh, it was a wonderful conversation and everything. And uh, so I returned the next day to do a uh, another war room on the bale seal, the with the uh, symbol on it, uh, where the uh, it was a bag seal or a bale yeah. seal. Yep. yep. And I showed him my uh, research on some symbols and as far as masonic symbols or right. uh, any kind so uh uh and the the stipulation about going up there this was the canadian government stipulating this is i couldn't leave anywhere i couldn't be anywhere but at the hotel which is the oak island resort now it used to be the atlantica right or on the island and i went for four days flew up the first day went to the island and visited them came back the next morning for the for the uh, war room meeting, and uh, I had to go right back to the hotel. Well, I hung out as long as I could on the yeah. I'm not going to leave. And Charles <laughs> around, he showed me, he showed me these big rocks they're putting on the shoreline, and oh, that's yeah. uh -huh. might ever end to Isaac's Point. And he drove kind of right out on the point with a four by four, uh -huh. and uh, and I said, "What are those rocks all for?" And he said, "We're trying to protect the island from the tides and the storms." And yeah, exactly. And then he took me and showed me the, uh, well, he showed me Samuel Ball's foundation. And I had seen it before from a distance because a, a Prometheus producer had taken me in, but you couldn't get any closer than 200 feet because I didn't have a permit. So we were just like looking through the woods at it and taking pictures, but we couldn't walk up to it. Well, this time he drove up to it. He said, you still can't go. I can't let you out to walk over there, but you can see it a lot closer. And then he took me to where they found those artifacts and they were rolling right along with a dig there uh, with a tent top over the top of it and finding right. stuff. But um, I think after they had to let the, after the big hullabaloo and they had to let all the archeologists go, um, I'm not sure what they did. I, I, I looked for that same tent and everything uh, on the show, and then I never, never saw it. So I don't know if they filled back in what they found, or they just left it in situ and said, "Well, if you guys want to take over, whatever." But uh, they were, you know, there was this that that explained to me why there was this kind of a pall. Because even with the other guys, I was sitting in the archive room with Doug and Steve and Scott and uh, Laird, and they were making little. Uh, jokes with each other like guys do, you know, uh -huh. on each other and stuff like that. But they weren't particularly happy, you know. You could tell, and uh, 
so so uh, you know everybody was like what the heck you know we we were yeah. doing everything right and we lost it so anyway so i did get to, i didn't take any pictures there cuz uh, there was just stuff is going on steadily uh, people can't even imagine um, you know you got camp film uh, crews everywhere and uh, you just don't have time to say hey can you pose for a picture or whatever you know it doesn't right. happen but uh, but uh, if you want to show number five, uh, yep, he, he did take me up to uh, the Money Pit Hill, and they had been drilling those core drillings that day. The table was still set up, but nobody was at the table. But Mike Tedford and the oh. and another guy there were just getting ready to leave, and so I jumped out of the four by four and ran over and stood in front of their truck, mm. and they stopped, and I went to Mike's side and I said, "Hey, my." wife's maiden name was Tenford. Can I get a photo with you? <laughs> he, he got a big smile on me. He said, sure. So he got out That's of the truck cool. and uh, Charles actually took that picture of us right there. That's neat. So, uh, and then uh, later I uh, was going to meet Carmen. Uh, Carmen and I were going to trade books because he helped me a lot with, uh, with Oak Island and New Ross. And he has a book on oxen, which is a pretty nice book. Yeah. The so use of oxen. Yep. So we made this deal. We were going to trade, uh, you know, trade books. So mm -hmm. he uh, said, well, I'll meet you. I'll just meet you at the Atlantica because I told him I can't go anywhere. So he said, I'll just meet you there. So uh, I'm sitting in the foyer looking out the door and here comes the pickup truck. And I thought, well, that might be Car Carmen. And uh, then right behind it comes a blue vet. <laughs> That's Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> And honest to God, he pulled it around a little circle and parked and got out. And I had, I got such a big kick out of that. So uh, I was kind of kidding him about, about his cool car. So um, there, somebody took a four by eight of just like a particle board and they drew a very detailed, beautiful, beautiful drawing of Oak Island and the main features of it and all that. And it hangs there in the Oak Island resort. Yep. So I That's thought, well, awesome. Perfect place to get our picture taken. Yep. So we found somebody that was willing to to take our picture. So those are the only two pictures I got from those two days I was there. But uh, it was nice meeting those guys, meeting with them. Yeah, we just had Carmen on uh, last uh, last Saturday. He was great fun. He he's oh. always, he's been on the show a couple of times now, like yourself, and he has just been phenomenal. We he's got such great stories and. Awesome things that that's so neat that I can't wait to meet him in person. Hopefully this summer when I get up there, I get to meet him in person. So that, what a, what a treat to meet both of those guys. And that's the thing about the guys from choice drilling, you know, we see them on, uh, you know, on TV when they're doing their work, but they don't really get, you know, the, the fanfare because they're always busy, you know, nobody's ever standing around talking yeah. to them or anything like that. So what a treat to meet them. That's, you know, cause they're, they're just as important in all of this as, as everybody else really. And Mike's walked a lot of stuff over to the table yep. and actually even answered some questions here and there. Uh -huh. And every time we see him, uh, I'll say to my wife, there's your cousin. <laughs> you know, so about the Tedford name and told him how we're, we have trouble finding anybody by that name and mm -hmm. basically everything we knew about. It. So he, he got a big kick out of it. Yep. So uh, for whatever reason, uh, neither one of my war room uh presentations were shown and that isn't unusual because my very first one which was the i was the last person to present in the old war room 
wasn't shown. And um, I think two snippets from two actual war rooms were have been shown and snippets from two Zoom meetings have been shown. Mm-hmm. But overall, I've been on, uh, I think, 12 episodes. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You, I remember that one time you popped up and you, you had sent me a message that I didn't even know that I was going to be on tonight. <laughs> you know, that was such an odd thing because uh, it was just before we sold my mother's house and all of my siblings had gone to my mom's house and we were just, you know, old time sake or whatever. And I said, do you mind if I put Curse of Oak Island on? And it came right up with my face right away. And I'm yeah. like, kidding me. That was like four times. That was last year. That was last season. I was on yep. the from that four different times. But uh, so anyway, I, uh, after I got back, uh, maybe a month later, uh, they called and asked if I would do a Zoom with Maddie Blake because he wanted a feature Freemasons, and I'd been presenting stuff on Freemasons right from the very beginning. So, um, if you go to seven, you'll see, yeah, it's me in the war room that day, and uh, their uh, uh, the their method is a little bit different than yours because I can't see one. I can see them in the beginning, but once they start the filming and everything, I can't see them anymore. So I'm like talking to a literally a blank screen, you know. Yeah. Oh, that'd be uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, it was funny. The first time that we, uh, first time I was ever on a Zoom, uh, this was with the crew in the war room. Mm-hmm. They were, they didn't realize they left the mic on. It was a setup time, you know, before the show. And so I'm hearing them talking about all this stuff that I wasn't supposed to know, you know, <laughs> this thing they found and they were going to cut it in half. And Rick was like, no, no, don't cut it. Wait till the air came <laughs> up and i'm like i don't think i'm supposed to be hearing all of this but uh um anyway the i got a lot of the bugs out of my system and by the time i did the one with uh, maddie it went a lot a lot smoother and uh so i was on the next to the last maddie blake show there and that was kind of cool too because the first thing if you remember that it was from two weeks ago the first thing that uh rick did was tell Maddie he should talk to me and uh, mm-hmm. he said uh, I can tell you what or I'll tell you what he's done his homework and right. that well, and I and also I have to tell you uh, you know you got to take the good moments as much as you can because I've been at this for I'm into my seventh year and there's been a lot of long lonely nights of writing and my eyeballs burning and all that you know but mm-hmm. somebody says something nice you really got to Love it. So uh, in all that stack, I had about an inch stack to get across the border of paperwork. And one thing in there was a letter of recommendation from Prometheus. And it said, uh, as one of our key researchers with Oak Island Tours Incorporated, James A. McQuiston's on-screen appearances are critical to the production and unique theories that only he can provide. So someday is to put that in a frame and stick it on that that is definitely a treasure in itself, right there. Yeah. That is really cool. That is and, that's an honor. It really is. And it gave and it gave me more enthusiasm. I wanted to go up really bad, but I was very nervous about the COVID situation, and yeah. Yeah. it gave me like that final push over to just go ahead and do this and let the chips fall where they right. may. But anyway, enough anecdotes, I guess. But, but we could, could probably get into the book and the code. Uh, here's the. A copy of the book. Yep, uh, I don't have mine yet. It's uh, it's on the way, but it's not here yet. I know quite a few people have 
have uh, jumped on and said that they have it and they're reading it and how great it is. But uh, I have yet to get it, get my copy. I've had a lot of uh, comments. I, I think I've had more people write me about this book than any other book, and and yeah. uh, they enjoy it. And uh, so, uh, and I wanted that uh, doorway there. I wanted an old, old doorway, like you were mm -hmm. going in the doorway of Curses, Codes, and Secret Societies. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be from a Jewish temple. Oh, really? The way Oak Island works, because I never even thought about I mean, I, I was actually thinking... Am I stealing Jewish art to talk about Scots? Turns out I got a whole chapter in here on the wow. uh, Jewish Kabbalism, Kabbalism, however you say that, Kabbalism. Kabbalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I thought when I got to that part of my research, I thought, well, maybe there I was supposed is. to put that door on the front, you know, after. Yeah, things work out that way. And I want to say, too, real quick, is that we have. For those of you that are interested, you can find it on Amazon, but we also have it in, in linked in the description below. And I believe that uh, Linda has also linked it on the YouTube side. But if oh, you wow. want to take a look and, and find the book, you can find it in the description. There is a link that will take you right to Amazon where you can get it. Great. That's great. I, you know, I, I've been asked about, you know, why I published there. Uh, you know, I, I was in printing all my life. I retired from it and I can do all the, that background work. Yeah. And I also went to a seminar on publishing, and they told me, you know what, you might as well just self-publish because you're going to be doing all the work anyway. All they're going to do is take their share, but you're right. going to be going to the talks and setting up talks and everything else. And, it, and it's pretty simple to do. There's some cost involved, but it's fairly, I mean, it's simple to publish. It's difficult to write it, research it, lay out the pages. Get. I have two really good proofreaders that don't give me any room at all to make a mistake. I mean, they are on my case, red marks all over everything all the time. That'd be Linda Simpson. She might be, yeah. No, so, that's well, what she does for me. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, one's my own wife, Beth, who spent years in the print business too, and is very particular about detail. And then the other is my cousin, Pat, who actually taught writing in the, at the cottage college level. So she, they both have different perspectives of what could or should be changed, you know, uh, because they're just, their backgrounds are different, you know, but, uh, right. and sometimes I get like, you can't change my words, you know, that kind of a thing, but you know, if, if it's a good idea, I use it. So that's right. Yep. But, uh, as far as like Kindle, I tried two of my books through Kindle and, uh, it just, uh, moved everything around so bad. Uh, yeah. Uh, the picture that was going with the text was on a different page, stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just made me so mad because I try so hard to make it, uh, the book readable and aesthetically nice and all that in addition to the research yep. and see that happen. So I'm probably not going to ever do a Kindle book. Uh, I've also been asked about an audio book and, uh, I know you have a great voice, so maybe someday you'll do an audio book of. Oh, that would be awesome! I would be honored. I would be honored to do that for you. I absolutely. And I did but, want to mention too that you're right about the Kindle, and that was one of the questions that we had from uh, Michelle was asking that question about that, and and you just explained. I I did get the Kindle version of Gretchen Cornwall's one of her books. And it was, you're right, it was. It got everything all mixed up. It was actually very difficult to get through the book. 
Yeah, and I was in. Yeah, it takes away the 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 experience of the pictures and how that all relates together. It really does. Unfortunately, I I'm so uh, specific or whatever that there is only one page in all of my eight books that doesn't end with a sentence and a period, and I as it was in the middle of a quote, and I couldn't figure out any way to do it, but I tried to make it easy to read. It's only slightly bigger than regular type, but I'm, you know, up there in years, and I don't like reading that teeny, teeny, they have really teeny type with big space between the lines, and I'm like, why didn't you just make the type better and make the space lower, you know, but uh, so I try to make it easy to read, and a lot of people, even as complex as they are, a lot of people read them in one or two days, one or two settings, you know, they might read the book one night and the other half the next, and, uh, but uh, so uh, you know, maybe an audiobook's down the road. I mean, there won't be any photos. You know, that's yeah, that's the bad part of that. Yep. But it would satisfy some people that have trouble reading, or they just exactly. like audio, whatever. Uh, but anyway, so we should probably get into the code because there's a lot to talk about there. Mm-hmm. Not, yes, there is. I'm not going to hold too much back here today, uh, just because I I'm so anxious for people to know about this. So. If you go to slide eight. All right. I'll bring that up right now. There we go. So uh, these are the three, uh, I guess you'd call them written down translations of the code. And mm-hmm. the the code was uh, first translated by uh, an, what they're calling an Irish professor in uh, at Dalhousie University. But I believe he was a uh, Huguenot myself, a not going to get into all of that, but um, and then it, this was given to Reverend Austin Kempton in 1909, and he sat on it for years. Now he was a he graduated from one of the top universities in Nova Scotia, and he was a minister, you know. So he probably wasn't going to risk his reputation by running around with some fake code or whatever. And he showed it to Frederick Blair in in 1949. And he showed it to uh, a man named Edward Snow, who wrote a, a lot of books about legends and stories mm-hmm. up the coast from like Cape Cod up to uh, Nova Scotia, the Maritimes, I guess you'd call it. And he showed it to him and <clears throat> he kind of transposed it a little bit, not the, not the actual code, but just the way he laid it out. He put it into four lines rather than into the original two lines, right. probably just fit in the book and be able to make the letters bigger or the symbols bigger. The one thing that those two have in common is that the very last symbol looks like a Roman numeral two. Uh-huh. Which is significant significant to my code. The right. the modern reproduction makes that symbol be a rectangle. Yeah, and, that's what you see on this one down here, yeah. And the same code is in the line right up above it. That that symbol right here. is twice. And that is actually the symbol for a person's name. Oh, is it really? Wow. And um, so just looking at these symbols right here, uh, one thing that Mary Queen of Scots did, and I'll show you on the next slide, but we can leave it here for a minute. Okay. Uh, Zoom in on the middle one. Okay. Uh, So she used a thing called the null, uh, which was a bogus symbol to confuse people. Uh And, so the most common symbol in that whole 
code right there is the thing that looks like kind of like a percent sign in a yeah, way. On here, and yeah, I noticed that. So that was her number one null. She drew it just a little bit different, but on her codex sheets, she would list like five or six nulls, but that was like always the first one. So I thought, well, wouldn't that make sense that you would put it in enough times to really confuse people? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, Don, uh, Daniel Ronstam, I think is his name, he presented in the war room and he eliminated that from the code too with the idea that it was some type of a punctuation mark. Oh, okay. I eliminated it with the idea that it was this null that she put in there to confuse people. Uh -huh. But even if it, uh, even if it is meant to represent something, uh, my, I, I approach the code in a different way than I think everybody else. I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm, using symbols to represent entire words, not letters. Right. Which always done as a letter per letter. And that's the way her codex was. Uh, it was a symbol per word. Right. And Makes secondly, sense. assume it's not directions on how to dig up the money pit, because why would you ever put directions 90 foot down on how to dig the hole? You know, yeah. it just doesn't make any sense that they're down that far, because right. who even know to dig in that spot to go find them? To know what to do so that always puzzled me yep. and uh finally i i'm using a well-known code the mqs code that matches every every symbol matches every symbol but one and that is the three dot triangle oh okay and yeah right here when i presented i had nothing to show for that it was used as a arithmetic symbol for the word therefore like I had three apples. I found three more. Therefore, I have six apples. You know, that was it was that, and that started in the 1600s. But I couldn't figure out anything else about it. Well, uh, what I found about it, which was absolutely amazing, is that is currently the code for Master Mason. So if you see a sonic document online or anywhere you see one, and you see a gentleman's name, and you see that code in front of it, that means he's a Master Mason. Took me a long time to find that out. When I finally did, I went to my uh, friend, Doc Hamels, and I said, am I reading this right? And he said, yeah, you are. And he said, I'll, I'll send you some things that are public domain online right. that'll show that you're right. So he did. But my research was showing me that that was originally the symbol for the master of the stonemasons, not a master mason, but the master wow. of the Wow. The master of the stonemasons at the time of my theory, his name's on that same stone. It's wow. the plus sign that you see. Uh, say right. the, uh, yeah, the, the last line. Oh, down here. Okay. Yeah. First symbol is the word support. And the second one is this gentleman's name. The third is, uh, I believe it's meant to be God. Uh, the th fourth is uh, the symbol for Master Mason. Mm -hmm. The fifth is the word and, and the sixth is the son of the man that was the plus. <laughs> so both father and son are on the stone, and they're on there twice because they're on the line right up above it. Right, right here, yes. So um, now if you go on to go to the very next slide, uh, it'll help explain things. Uh, 
So you can see how she made her null, and you can see what the symbol is on the stone. And they're not absolutely identical, but you have to consider that she wrote that 450 years ago. Right. That somebody, if my theory is correct, carved it onto the stone, uh, maybe 200 years later. Uh -huh. Somebody at the university wrote it down to, and gave it to Reverend Kempton. And then Edward Snow wrote it down. So it like the old parlor game, you tell a secret, and by the time it gets around a circle, it's totally different. Well, exactly. far off. So eliminating that from the code, this is what uh, this is what the end result is. And uh, so if you go to the next slide, okay, that would be 10, yeah, and zoom in there a little bit. Um, if you go right up to the top, You'll see this is uh, not the world's first reveal of this because I talked about it on on Doc Hamill's show, but right. Oh God, Send Angels, which is absolutely in keeping with all these, not all of them, but a, a lot of these cursed tablets buried right. around the world. That's what you had said earlier. Yeah, exactly. And so this handwriting, all this handwriting on here is hers. This was all written. All, she drew the symbols and she wrote the word. Uh, 450 years ago. Well, the first word was cut, cut and dried. Uh, it's O, and O is different than O-H. O is like O Canada, O, o Christmas tree, O say, can you see? It's a supplication, okay. To uh, usually to God, but uh -huh. it can be something else too. Whereas O-H is like, oh, I can't find my keys. You know, right. It's, right. You know, yes. Words. Uh, she had no word for God or Jesus on her any of her codex sheets. I checked them all, and the but what's odd about that is she died for her religion. It was the fact that she would not give up her Catholic religion that she ended up getting beheaded for. So you would think, well, why wouldn't she have that? So I noticed that uh, that symbol was intelligence with a capital I. But she had intelligence on the stone elsewhere with a lowercase i with a totally different symbol. Right. So I thought maybe she's, it's like a double code, but she's speaking of God as like supreme intelligence. Because why else would you have intelligence on the same sheet of paper twice, one with a capital and one without? All right. Send was absolute uh, and angels was absolute. Those are the absolute copies of it. So I translated that first line is, oh, God, send angels, which again is in keeping with a lot of these curse stones. Right. Mm -hmm. So off to the right-hand side are just other random characters. I didn't put them all on there, but, you know, the circle with the line through it is the word so. The cross with the bar up high is support. Mm -hmm. The circle with the dot in the middle is will. The colon is and. The X is not. And she had Scotland on several of her, of course, she was the Queen of Scotland, but she had that on so, several of her codexes as a squared off C. She also had Edinburgh on there with a different symbol, but I was running out of room on the slide to get them all <laughs> on. But uh, uh, so uh, the based on this, if I'm correct, the 90 foot stone talks about Edinburgh, Scotland. It talks about the master Mason or the grandmaster of the Masons. Talks about these two guys, father and a son. Uh -huh. uh, it talks about a great treasure. There's a symbol for a great treasure. And you know, when they were in Portugal and they saw that 
symbol with the two with the cross on the bottom and the cross yes. on the that Alex yep. found. That yep. was the symbol for the great treasure. Oh wow. So um I figured I gotta be on to something by now. So I went through uh, it took about a month of finding everything and trying to make sense out of it all. And I was feeding the information to Prometheus and to Rick and the team almost daily, you know, and just consistently uh, telling what stage I was at and everything. And uh, so, like I said earlier, I kind of look at uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, as this turning point because she actually granted my my number one suspect is William Alexander it's always talked about uh -huh. and he on slide 11 there but the thing about him is that his family was granted their it was former Templar property and they were granted it by Mary Queen of Scots she also did some other granting of lands and titles based around uh, the remnants of the Templars and it's all I have some of it in my books already uh -huh. So it's kind of like that's when the era of, and the legend and everything of the Templar was dying down and they were dissipating their land and and belongings or whatever. Right. But uh, William Alexander's sons were the first two known uh, non-operative Masons, which is what became the Freemasons in history. And that's not just me saying that. That's They have the documents in Edinburgh to prove it, but... It's on many Freemason sites and Freemason books. Uh -huh. And they were born on that same Templar property. He was born on that Templar property, and they were born on that Templar property. Right. They Templar property because one of their ancestors fought with Robert de Bruce. It gets into a big deal there. but um, So they were carrying on this uh, whole um, idea of secret societies and esoteric knowledge and all of that. And the third Freemason was his business partner in Nova Scotia. And uh, all the first seven, and I found that all in a book. Uh, I was led to it by uh, Kel Hancock, who is the grand, he was, he is, or was, uh, the grand historian of the Grand Lodges of Nova Scotia. Wow. It was inadvertent because he told me about two other old books I should look at. While I was searching for them, I found this particular book. It told all about this treasure that was stolen. It told all about the first seven Freemasons. They had biographies of them and everything. So if you just go to the very next slide. All right. This document oh, yes. was written July 3rd, 1634. And this is the initiation of William Alexander's son, William Alexander Jr., who led the Scots in Nova Scotia from 1628 to 1632 when they had to leave. So the same guy that led the Scots in Nova Scotia was the world's first Freemason. And nobody can prove any other Freemason besides him. And uh, so this document still exists, and I would love to go to Edinburgh, and I, I, whether the Masonic Lodge would let us in or not, you know, I'd love to go and have them dig it out of their probably in some frame or something, you know, to, to preserve it, um, to, to actually see the document. But they had these for every one of the the first seven, uh, I'm, I'm sure they had them for many others, but for the right. first Freemasons, they had a document like this. And uh, in the book where I found it, they also translated it 
into normal writing, but it was still in Old Scots, which is kind of like English, but not really. Uh -huh. Anyway, so um, those guys were initiated as the first non-operative Masons under the name under the guy whose name was found on the ninety-foot stone. That he was the grandmaster of the stone masons. He was also a good friend of William Alexander. He was on different committees with him. Alexander drew a map of Nova Scotia in 1624, and that guy's title, he was Earl of Arendelle, his title's on that map. They were on a, a fishing council, which I believe was actually a spy agency. Um, and here's the big kicker is Sir Francis Bacon died at that guy's house. So uh, when I started seeing all this stuff, I mean, my head's just spinning. Is that yep. this? All I could think of is full circle, full circle. Everything's wow. going full circle right now. Wow. Circles too. But if you want to skip to the next uh, slide, right. this actual guy, I, I think I'm going to just hold off name and names at the moment. But his name is on the stone twice if you use the MQS. His family was totally uh, connected to her. I mean, incredible ways they were connected to Mary Queen of Scots. Wow. The guy who Bacon died in his home. He was the friend of Sir William Alexander. So um, uh, maybe we could take the slides off for a second here. Uh -huh. And I'll uh, tell you a couple other little stories right now. All so, right. Anyway, that's what the book's about, and it expands on the Freemasons and the beginning of them and on uh, Kabbalism being a driving force. I have a complete chapter on Francis Bacon and how he gels into all these different angles and everything. Uh, and there's a lot of details, but I, I try to present it in a way that if you're a good reader, you can, you know, it's complex, but it's not difficult. There's a difference. Uh -huh. you're, gonna, you're not going to be you know, beating yourself in the head. I can't understand this. I can't understand this, you know. So um, you probably heard about the little snafu with the uh, pricing of the book. That yeah, I did. <laughs> it, for some reason that came out on Amazon at $250, which I wouldn't even pay that for it, you know. So I was going to say, uh, did you get any takers for that? No, not wow. that I know. They bought, <laughs> they bought one for $250. Send it back, get your money back, and then buy mm. it for Twenty-one and ninety-five, or whatever the price is on it, but uh, it they changed, they fixed the price in Canada first, and I literally made twelve phone calls to them. I chatted with them. I sent emails. I got promise after promise, and one of the problems was it was over a weekend. Nobody oh, was right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Blew a whole day right there. Yep. And uh, so it got changed in Canada first. So right off the bat, as soon as it got changed in Canada, I got three book sales right, right off the bat. Well, one of those was a guy named Art Jenis, and I hope he doesn't mind that I mention his name, because he sent me a, he had written, read half the book at that point, and he, he sent me this uh, question. He said, you know, I, I love your theory and all that. He said, but do you think there's any chance that Mary Queen of Scots got her symbolism from somewhere else, even if she assigned her own words to those symbols. Right, right, yep. Thinking back to the church in Portugal and that symbol that means great treasure. Right. Uh, I, I, I wrote him back. I said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess she could. I mean, you know, 
you get symbols from anywhere, but maybe she did. So that got me on the idea of uh, of another book that ties specifically as much as I possibly can with everything I found before and everything I'm finding out ties the Templars to the Freemasons. And that was one driving force. But the other one was, is that I've been asked to, I've done a few Masonic lodges, you know, talks. And I have to tell you, the first one I did, they said, don't talk about Oak Island, just talk about the Templars and the Freemasons. <laughs> and with that, and I, I said, well, do you, are there any questions? I was there for another hour and a half. Answering <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even supposed to talk wow. about it. They were the ones asking the questions. But, uh, and in the meantime, I'd already started thinking about the Portugal connection and uh -huh. we wanted to get out of the cold. So we decided to go down to Brazil and, uh, and that was another tough trip because of the COVID. Uh, oh, I imagine, yeah. But um, so we, I, I hooked up with this historian guide down there, uh, mm -hmm. Luis Dos Santos. And he was just a gem of a guy, spoke wonderful English. He was of Portuguese, uh, mixed descent, but essentially oh. Portuguese. He spoke Portuguese. He spoke Spanish. He was telling us the difference between the two and English and all that. And so he knew that one of my goals was to go to the museum there. Uh, one thing was because there's a coin, there's only two of them in the whole world. It was issued in Portugal and it's got the Knights of Christ symbol on the back of it. Wow. One of them resides in this museum, and the other one was just found a few years ago in a shipwreck uh, over by Africa, and it was in a clump of other of other coins. But, uh, you know, somebody who studies coins found it and said, oh, my God, we got only the second one in the whole world. So I wanted to see that coin, see what I could find about it. And I also wanted to learn about that Tumbaga gold, which is yeah. all put together. And surprisingly, what I found out about that was that Brazil really didn't produce much gold at all. Uh, the Tumbaga was principally gold that was traded to the Spanish in like Chile and Peru, places like that. But okay. they didn't start really mining in Brazil till uh, I think like the late 1600s or something. Mm -hmm. um, but I also found uh, uh, there's this island there that was named in the 1500s for a guy that's been in my book a number of times already that was kind of a somebody that William Alexander looked up to and he was French and he actually is the man who took Mary Queen of Scots from Scotland down to France and he had to wow. circumvent the English that were waiting to capture her to get her down there so he was a big Scottish hero even though he was French well he went down there about the same time the Portuguese did and uh his then he left and his troops got uh, uh, attacked by the Portuguese. Uh -huh. But they but the island that he set up on is still named for him. Oh and wow! It's due to the uh, Brazilian Navy now, so it's been named that since the 1500s. It's just crazy how things will stay the same forever. You know that right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, but the the funny part about it is is that the well, it's not terribly funny in the beginning is that the uh, museum had burnt uh, uh, a couple of years ago and 
so they they were fixing it up and they and the curators and the director and everybody were was there but they weren't open to the general public but he thought he could get me in anyway so we went down there and if you go to the next slide this one's right. kind of a funny one i mean in a way it's funny um that'd be number 14 yep so here we are at that gate with an armed guard and if you zoom down on his uh right hand side you'll see a nice big pistol oh, yeah. yep Oh, I'm standing there. I can't talk Portuguese or Brazilian, whatever. And Louise is just talking a mile a minute and to this guy. And the guy's talking back to him. And they're like semi-heated, you know. Uh -oh. like, basically, we got to get in there. And the, and the guard's saying, you're not going to get in here. Wow. And I, God, right, shortly after this picture was taken, he put his hand on the hip of that revolver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like... It's time to go, oh, Louise. Time to go. <laughs> time to go. I don't need to see that. I saw a picture of it. Not that important. Yeah. So we left. Wow. We left but um, we we got some really nice tours and a lot of history. He's, he was just a, a fount of knowledge about the Portuguese and Brazil and all of that. So it was well worth the thing. So it looks like he's wearing a bulletproof vest as well. So he's yeah. ready to go. I mean, this. And he wasn't wow. doing they had them stationed like every 20 or 30 feet wow uh, you know you know so i don't know it, 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 you know brazil had the olympics they had the uh sock world soccer thing and the pope visited three years in a row so they really built up their economy and all their buildings and the, mm -hmm. and the uh, ocean fronts and all that and then boom all of that dropped off and then covid hit yep. and uh so they had so much of their infrastructure build up now for nothing, kind of. So yeah. there's a lot of walking around without jobs and all that. And so I think they don't want their museum to be, you know, invaded because right. uh, people are desperate or whatever. Right. But anyway, so between that trip and already thinking about another book, even though I shouldn't be, and then getting this uh, message from Mark Jenis, uh, I thought, yeah, maybe, well, that, and then the fact that I'm going to do this talk in 2023, it's at a uh, teaching lodge, Masonic teaching lodge, and they invite uh, higher level Masons from a wide area, and they all come together at this lodge, and so you can't go in there and be a flunky. I mean, you got to go in there with the juice, you know. Exactly. So I already knew I was going to have to step up my game to do that and so everything just was coming together to think well uh maybe i will write one so uh just for a uh, half a minute or so uh you can put the next slide on here this is what i think the cover's gonna look like wow <laughs> i was looking at this one earlier when you sent it to me and i thought oh my goodness this is yes a book number nine but this yeah. has really got a lot of stuff going on here yeah and I've already found tons of stuff that I didn't even know. I had parts of it in my other books, but I kind of fleshed it out a little bit. And uh, so basically just says Oak Island, Knights Templar, and, Freemas and Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be the connections between them and then how the legends of them connected to the Money Pit particularly. So, um, but that's may not be the final cover because a lot of times I'll do a cover and then as I'm writing the book, I'll think, you know, there's something more appropriate, but I just like that cover. And then, of course, my latest book. Um, 
curses codes and secret societies and uh yeah that one there and that's the one that just came out right uh, and went through the trauma of a 250 dollars price tag and all that but like i say i think i've gotten more people write me back or write me about that book than any book i've ever written and uh uh, and one thing I do is I explain the nature of or the origin of the Oak Island curse, where it came about. Yeah. The, the yeah modern, go ahead. Sorry. Well, uh, uh, I can talk about it right now, but it was uh, there was not, no mention of the curse in any old newspaper articles. There was a mention of a superstition about the island. Uh -huh. There was no mention of a curse in the uh, Reader's Digest article, which you would have thought there would have been, because that's the exactly. article about everybody going. Uh -huh. I remember reading that when it came out, and I I used to read back then, and you probably remember it too. There was only three networks, plus you could maybe get yeah. one or two Canadian ones that were really fuzzy. Exactly. Yep. And the parents mm -hmm. controlled the knob anyway, so well, they had I, me. I was the remote control, yeah. and the guy running the rabbit ears. Yeah. <laughs> so you were. You know, kids read books and uh, like Jack London and Alexander Damas and uh, and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and all that. So I had a collection of those books, and uh, so that Reader's Digest went in with that collection of those books, and mm -hmm. I think it was in there for like three years till I started growing up more or whatever. You know, and I wished I would have kept the darn thing because it was it was just like I, I don't know how many times I read that same article and dreamt yeah. about treasure on an island and when when uh charles took me down to uh see nolan's cross I, mm -hmm. we just saw two of the rocks because it's very muddy in there it was uh more than i bargained for i tell you but i was great i was real happy to see him mm -hmm. but even and uh, he was just smiling so big and i said well you're just like the happiest man in the world and he said well why wouldn't i be a hunt for treasure on an island every day of my life <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> And I come here and do that, and then I'll be happy every day too. But uh, um, so uh, it, it's just—it's been a wonderful experience with those guys. And two things that I always say is that number one, there is no acting. Uh, there, yeah. there's setups for arrivals and stuff because they can't have two drones in the air and two guys standing on the causeway waiting for me to show up. You know. Right when I'm going to show up or if I show up unexpectedly or whatever, they have to say, can you drive back across the causeway and come yep. over so we get the camera. <laughs> and the first, the only time that I ever had to do that, mm -hmm. I really chuckled because they gave me a walkie talkie type of a thing. And they said, you'll hear your cue to come over when we're all ready, when we get the drones up. So I could right. the drones in the air, but I was just around a little corner <laughs> and, uh, so all of a sudden I heard somebody say action, James. And oh my God, I just burst out laughing because I never thought I'd hear those words. <laughs> I didn't know what they were going to say. So I drove across the causeway and I could see the, I tried, they didn't tell me not to, but I tried not to look directly at the cameras, you know, that right, was, yeah. you know, but uh, there were two guys on shore and there was two drones in the air and they had told me where to park. And uh, so, and this is the other part of that, story is i've been filmed for 20 hours or more and i was never once told what to say ever right i was told what not to say one time and that was the time because 
they told me to pull up by uh, Rick's truck and he'll come out and meet you. So I pulled up there. There are only two trucks. So I'm thinking there's only going to be like four or five people or, you know, how many people are going to be there, there rode together in a truck or whatever. So Rick comes out and greets me and we walk through the door and every, everybody was in there except like Dan wasn't in there, you know, but I mean, just by yeah. everybody. And it just shocked me so much that I said, wow, you brought the whole fam family. <laughs> the, <laughs> the producers there, because there's like three cameramen inside the war room. Uh, they said, no, you can't say that. Yeah, can, you, say that. <laughs> can you just walk out the door and walk back in and not say that? <laughs> All right. So, uh, so that's the only time yeah. they coached me. And, uh, so, and if you think about it, if everybody was an actor, they'd have to have a staff of script writers, uh, you know, maybe 20, I don't know. And then when would people learn their lines? Because right. they're you'll work it all day and then you're going to go home and sit there and okay tomorrow i have to say this 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 and this uh -huh. you know so it's it's uh their deal originally was we're going to do our search the way we want to do our search you can film us and you can present it how you want to yeah. present it. exactly so in like in my case i've been filmed like i say probably 20 hours or more but i've only actually if you count the number of minutes i've been on the screen even though i've been on 12 times you know, it's five or maybe 10 minutes uh -huh. for, for those 12 shows. So right. there's a lot of me laying on the cutting room floor in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I think that, uh, you know, they have different goals. Yeah. Uh, the Oak Island team wants to find a god darn treasure or at least the story about it. What, why, when, and where at least, yeah. Prometheus wants to have a successful TV show. Correct. And Oh, they're emotionally invested in it. I know that for a fact uh, yeah. because of conversations I've had, particularly emails with Prometheus, right? Uh, they invested too, but they still have to pay the bills. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and uh, so uh, so I do believe that sometimes things get lost in translation because they're being filmed there. The whoever this poor guy is that has to edit it it might be getting a feed from four different cameras, uh, you know, that he's got to decipher, which is the best feed to use. Yep. And he wasn't there at the meeting. And so he's got a synopsis of it that one of the people writes up, they show it to me every year and I get to edit it. Uh, you know, if, if I see where they wrote, they understood something wrong or whatever. Right. But he's reading the synopsis, which is still can only be part like I was in there for four hours one year. I, I only had a one hour presentation. They kept me in there for four hours. Wow. And how can a guy do a, unless you're really good at shorthand and then translating or whatever. So I think that maybe a little bit is lost there and also uh, their goals are different. So, you know, that's not to make an excuse for them. It's just that people got to understand that this is a big, big undertaking. It's, it's you, we see the very, very tip of the iceberg of mm -hmm. Oak Island. Yeah. Not only in the way it's filmed and what you see in the war rooms, but what they're actually doing. Because they find there's situations where they have to get permission for something. Yeah. Or they might catch hell for something that they talked about or did. Yeah. That they don't want to make a big deal on a show about it, but they have to you know, behave themselves. And that's why you can see the frustration in Marty's face when he said, 
we did everything right. <laughs> we tried to do everything right, you know. And uh, so um, I have to tell you, when we went up to New Rosk, and that was about that medallion on the Oak Island Knights book. Yes, yep. 1971. And uh, Tim and Alessandra were up there w- waiting for us. And the cousin of the man who owned, that found that was there because he was with them when he found it. They were just kids. And he knew right where they found it. He couldn't get his cousin to, to come to it. But uh, so they had uh, Rick and Doug and I rode up in one of those black trucks and uh, they had us parked down on the low road and we had to walk up this hill. Well, this hill wasn't a terribly challenging hill. It was, you know, it wasn't a, a straight walk for sure. But um, we get halfway up the hill and a semi truck comes down the road, just make all kinds of noise. So they're like, ah, cut, 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 go back. Right, down. Go back, go back. <laughs> So they had two drones in the air and two cameras filming us. And uh, so we walked back up. But we just about get to the top when the same thing happens. And oh, the drone operator said it totally ruined. He was near the road. He said, I can't, I've got nothing here, usable, whatever. Hmm. So, all right, um, we're sorry. Can you guys do it one more time? So by the time we came up that hill the third time, it was a little bit of a challenge. But uh, And then we got up there and... Uh, it was black fly, fly season, and oh, I heard about that. Yeah, him sprayed us all, uh, trying to prevent problems. But the flies were just bugging everybody, and everybody was swatting in front of their face. Yeah. And I'm can't and film like that either. They're not going to be able to use this film because how are they going to cut out where somebody doesn't have their hand in front of their face? Right. It turned out I got bit nine times. Oh, uh, and boy, they didn't go away for weeks. But we did. It ended well in the sense that we did talk the gentleman into bringing it to the war room. The only problem was it was a Saturday and the whole film crew was gone. I right. talked to Tom Levy on the phone and he said, I'll never get a crew together. There's just no way. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it, the only pictures, the only story about that that exists and the only real good photo and the only photos of that war room meeting are in my book, The Oak Island Nights. Yep. So uh, stuff like that happens, you know. And uh oh, he froze. All right. Uh, hopefully, it's. Uh, it looks like we lost James. Well, am I back? Oh, there you are. You're back. You got you froze there for a few minutes, or about about twenty seconds on us. Sorry. Well, let's hope that doesn't do that again. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, the satellite must have went behind the moon or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I don't, I forgot where I was after I froze, but, uh, anyway, uh, there's, there, they're not, there are not actors or scripts and yeah. it's a lot more complicated than any, Oh, I know. I was going to mention the bones, which, ah, yes. uh, okay. you know, found those two in H eight. Well, yes. they got people, started making comments about, you know, digging up a grave type thing, you know, and uh, I guess they just felt bad about it. You know, they didn't expect, you know, they expected to, for it to be welcomed and, and it depends on who's doing the complaining too. And I don't know who did the complaining, but uh, uh, so they thought, well, you know what, we got to diminish talking about them a little bit, you know, even though it's a very significant fine, finding. Absolutely. Bones from two different people from two different nationalities. Yeah. 
however far they were down, 100 foot or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that here is enough proof. Anybody that says there isn't anything there. Exactly. Just look at that, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so they just decided, well, we won't, you know, go down that path anymore. And uh, so things happen. Samuel Ball, they waited two years to get that permit because mm -hmm. I was on and seen it from 200 foot away. And the guy told me, we can't walk over there. We don't have the permit. And it was two years later before they finally got the permits to do what they did. So they're just struggling to get yeah. permitting. They're struggling to keep everybody happy, uh, you know, that might have some big negative thing to say. Now they've got the uh, Mi'kmaq uh, archaeology yeah. thing that they've got to do. Yep. And, uh, and it's it's like uh, the research. I kind of akin it to uh, a spider web. For everybody, it's a giant spider web. I'm just one little part of that spider web, and I can right. barely that part of it yeah. web together. Well, it's the same thing for them getting third party uh, drill uh, units set up, dealing with labor issues, uh, getting theorists lined up, getting the uh, uh, rooms, the flights, uh, worrying about a hurricane coming across yeah. the island. Yeah, that too. And, yeah, exactly. COVID, you know, yeah. threw them a big curve. Those mm -hmm. guys fighting. They fought a worldwide pandemic and a couple of hurricanes just in the last few years, yep. let alone all these other things that we know of, you know. So right. to keep the ball rolling, there has to be just so much spirit yeah. uh, in them. And you know what I've kind of noticed? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but uh, well, Rick looked a little maybe tired and frustrated towards the end of the season uh, until he went to Portugal. Yep. But Marty seemed like he got a booster shot for interest in, in Oak Island. And he just seemed like, you know, my God, we're going to, we're going to go, we're going to go, you know? Yep. So uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. He, uh, he really got a shot when he found the, uh, cause he, he made a comment about that when they found that, that part of that gun, uh, oh, the, yeah. the flintlock, uh, when they found that, he was he was pretty excited. He said, "I finally found something that I can show Rick. Hey, look what I found! You know, the Big Brother." Yeah. So, you know, he was pretty. And and that plus the Stone Road, you know, that they were following up through Lot 15, he got very excited about that too. So, you're right. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And you know, that's that's part of what you were just describing, is exactly what you know I have talked about in the fact that. You know, this was kind of a, this season, especially the last few episodes, the last several episodes, was a little bit lackluster, but it was also showing us, this is reality TV. You are seeing exactly what they're going through. You're seeing their frustrations. You're seeing their elation when they find something. So you're seeing this exactly what's taking place on the island right now, or, or you know, when they were filming, of course, and you're getting a true sense of what they go through. So we're frustrated because, oh, they didn't, they're finding more wood, but they, they put down another case on, they ran into bedrock, they had to pull it back up and go try another one. We were disappointed, but so are they. Look at their faces. And, and, and that's, 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 you get a sense of just exactly what they're going through when you see that and you feel that with them. And I think they experience it way more often. Than oh, absolutely. Do. Absolutely. Every single time that, Every hour Gary spent walking around aimlessly, or uh -huh. you know, uh, that th th thought this was here and that was there, and they weren't. And 
you know, the speaking of the wood, because you know, there's always the jokes about finding more wood and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it it is so significant because it can be dated, and yes, uh, you you can look at the metal and you can say, well, it's pre 1840 or it's pre 1700 or whatever, based on compounds in it, but you can't pinpoint it to exactly. a time. Uh, but you can pinpoint the wood mm-hmm. pretty darn well, and you can do a bar chart of all the times and they on one of the episodes they showed a number of things that fit my 1632 theory uh, you know but that that phenomenon could happen for another time period too so I'm not saying that I exclusively have the time period where everything fits but I do have a lot of things (laughs) you're right so uh, every time they find it, it depends on where they find it and you know the in situ situation of it because if it's down, right. if it's axe cut and it's down about where the money pit was at hundred foot, right. and it to the oldest date on that particular piece was sixteen twenty six, I believe. Yep, that means something. I yeah. mean, it means something. Uh, how did it get down there? Why was it axe cut? And why was it put down there so long ago? So. Right. Every time they find any kind of significant piece of wood, in fact, I've been saying to people they need to put a um, carbon dating lab right on the island. You know? <laughs> I so, know, wouldn't that be something? Yeah, Charles, take that down and carbon date it right now. You know, exactly. Yeah, and I don't know what that process goes through, but like, and that was when they brought the CT scanner on there. Yeah, you know, they first started off with the XRF that you talked about that told them, you know, found that the gold on the metal. And that, right. if, you know, they were looking at the combination of that gold with the copper and the silver in it and then coming up with Tambaga gold being very similar in its uh, uh, percentages of gold, copper and silver. So, it, yeah, it, if they were able to do something like that with the wood, I mean, oh, the time it takes to get the results back. I mean, and the expenses, I mean, it's got to be expense, yeah. yeah, that uh, that second machine you were talking about, I saw that in operation. They, they had gotten oh, it, not, not too much earlier than when I got there and Rick was so excited about it. Mm-hmm. And so they had, uh, you know, that guy that was the the guy that was, I, I'm sorry that I don't remember his name, but he was the one that was cleaning up the items they were finding. He was like a curator or whatever. Dustin oh, was. yes. Yeah, I can He's see him older. standing there, but I can't think of his name. Uh, Linda will remember. She'll pop it up here for me. <laughs> well, I was in the room there and there were actually three, women in there. This is before the fiasco with the uh, deciding to, you know, let the uh, Sandy archaeologists go, but they were in there rebuilding different pieces of pottery and stuff. They were finding pieces and gluing together to try to find out what, you know, if they had enough pieces that matched, they were trying to figure out what that item was originally. So they had three people at a table doing that. And then this other gentleman was in there uh, reading pieces of metal and stuff. And I, I imagine they read like every piece of metal they ever found, you know, to get compositions. But anyway, Rick showed it to me and it is so cool because it does a 10 second test and a 30 second test. And then it puts the comparisons of those two tests. Uh, They're okay. method, different methodology to each test, but then it puts the uh, findings side by side mm-hmm. and Usually the same exact number. Sometimes they vary a little bit, but what's happening is it's literally getting two tests at one time. It's not just the one test. And so wow. 
that doubles the effectiveness of it. Yeah, you know? I, had, I didn't know they did that. That's cool. Yeah. And, uh, but that CT scanner, that wasn't there yet. But speaking of that musket, so as soon as I saw that, um, I know there was talk about it might be Portuguese or they were popular from the 1500s up. Well, the first actual musket or flintlock ever built was built in 1630, which was just two years before my 1632 date. Wow. And you right online uh my my guess on that is that it was uh probably not a deposit it was probably one of the farmers or the searchers or somebody but well, the biggest question about that is where's the barrel yeah I mean, exactly you know if you're going on the show when we talked about it i said where's the other parts of it there should be a barrel there somewhere yeah if you're gonna if you're gonna if you if you, your gun breaks for some reason maybe exploded or whatever uh -huh. Why are you going to leave part of it there and take the rest of it home? You're going to either right. leave it, take it all home, and try to fix the darn thing. Exactly. And the, uh, they found two more pieces like that over where William Phipps was born in New Brunswick. And the gentleman that's working with that team contacted me and Doug and another person, can't remember the third person, and um, wanted to know if there was some way that they could work with them to, uh, you know, see if if the, the, if they match or, you know, what, you know, what the comparisons are. And I just deferred to Doug. I said, I, I'm not that intimately involved with the show and Doug's the man, you know? Right. I just backed out of the email. First of all, I get so many emails and everybody's got a theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Oak Island team was actually sending me theories. They were getting to vet, and you can only do so much on, you want to spend hours and hours and hours researching that angle you know if, if there's an ounce of believability then you look into it further but i've had uh, i want to say about six guys that are writing books that have shared parts of their books with me and have asked me questions that might help them out and uh three of those people one was a intelligence analyst one was a uh policeman in detective in England and the other one was a uh, some other oh he was an investigator in the army in the in the military I don't know what branch but he was in Afghanistan and right. uh, uh, you know did forensic investigations for them there and uh, so these are like people that you know I feel like a peon when I'm emailing these guys because they're you know and uh, one of them had a lead about when Cornwallis came over to found Halifax, that wasn't his real destination. And he defied what his orders were. And before he went to Halifax, which wasn't called that at the time, right. that was 1749, he yeah. went to Home Bay. And by looking at the compass readings that were in the logbook and looking at the depth chart readings of where they parked the boat they were just off the coast of oak island wow and there's no other place in mahone bay where it's that same depth reading oh so, wow but he had his uh, uh he wanted to focus on that. my focus is a little bit different but we shared a million emails about it but the latest one was this david neeson uh and he found a grove of trees, just like the ones on Isaac's point that are on oh, an 
in Scotland. Really? And he's writing a book about the flora and fauna of and geology of Oak Island and how modern science can, you know, what they what it can deduce from mm-hmm. that. And he's working with other people. It's not just him alone. And one of the people he's working with was a botanist in Scotland that lived not too far from those trees. They're on an island up on the north northwest actually right off the island where my family came from and uh they uh they looked just like it and i took a photo of the isaac point trees where there was one group of two or three trees missing and mm-hmm. i took his photo and i put it in there and you couldn't tell the difference and wow. in my book you can't tell that i had to put an arrow on it because i knew nobody would know which one i'm talking about you know and was this the the uh, umbrella oaks the real tall yeah and okay. uh yeah, yeah. Yep. So this uh, botanist uh, talked about what he thought they were, but the most interesting thing about it, which this David Neeson didn't even know at the time, mm-hmm. was that he, this guy said that that kind of tree was brought to Scotland from France by Mary Queen of Scots' entourage. Really? He personally planted a tree, one of those trees at a, uh, one of the older sites of uh, Scottish royalty, and that thing didn't die until I think it was 1945. Wow! And the trees on Oak Island all died. Uh, they they were almost gone by about 1935, and then somebody wrote about them again in 1945. Said there were just a couple of them left, and then I think in right. in uh, 1957 somebody wrote that they were. They were gone. So yep. it it was almost the same time zone. He didn't even know I was writing about Mary Queen of Scots when he sent me that. And I didn't I couldn't I couldn't break the news, you know, I, I NDA and everything else going on. I didn't want yeah. to break that. But uh I eventually did when I in, inserted that part in my book, I sent it to him so he could realize some of the significance. But before he ever even knew about me or my sixteen thirty-two book or anything they had estimated those trees were planted between based on their lifespan were planted between 1622 and 1752 based on the lifespan of those trees. So I can't wait for the book to come out because there's one I'm going to get and and read, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. if he's explored every other detail as much as he's explored those trees, there should be stuff in there. And I don't know if you know, the the Oak Island team hired a couple botanists to look at the records of what of what was found when they found the money pit, the descriptions of it. Right. And they also came up with a date in the sixteen hundreds because based on what the 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 saplings that had been growing and they just did an analysis of all the information there was and right. they came up with that same time period too. So uh, wow. they weren't the you know, there's a book right there. I think I told this guy about it, David Neeson. I think I told him, you better look into that because uh, that might there might be some more fodder for your book. But uh, so there's lots of theories, and it's not my job to prove everybody else's theory. I I believe in mine. Mm-hmm. Saying it's absolute, but I'm saying it's a very likely scenario, and I'm doing my job taking care of my little part of the spider web. 
Mm -hmm. And somebody else can do the Portugal part of the spider web and somebody else can do whatever, you know, and that's their job. And it's kind of like, I think of it as like when you go into a law case and you, and there's a prosecuting lawyer and a defense lawyer, well, their job isn't to be the judge or the jury. Right. Defense is supposed to get the guy off and the prosecutor's supposed to prosecute him. And that's all right. they, so I'm just one of those lawyers, <laughs> prove the, you know, but, yep. um, so anyway, uh, I have so much fun doing it. I, I have fun coming on shows like this and I do live talks too. Uh, I just did one a couple of weeks ago and I got one coming up in about two weeks. And yeah. basically I just make like a slideshow kind of like what I gave to you. Right. And I tell my story and people are just fascinated by it. And they, oh, they absolutely. ask really good questions too, you know, yeah. like, so, well, speaking of that, we have a couple too that um, that people presented. Uh, Elaine cool. asked this question. She said, "Does uh, do you think that there is more treasure buried on Oak Island in addition to the Money Pit site? There's been the multiple treasures, multiple um, you know people using Oak Island theory over the years. So that's I think that's where Elaine is going with this. Do you think there's more than just you know what may be in the Money Pit?" Well, uh, uh, another somewhat complex answer, but Rick asked me that same question. He said, "What if you were in charge of all of this, where would you dig? I said, at the money pit, because that started this whole thing off. And you only have to find a couple clues. You don't have to find the whole cash. If you find dated coins there or uh, you know whatever you could find, who knows, because we've been surprised like crazy already. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would want to focus there, but I absolutely know that a ship wrecked near the island. Uh-huh. I talked to the sea captain that dove on it back in the 70s. Oh, really? He pulled up coins and he pulled up uh, the interesting thing he pulled up was silverware that had a, a stag emblem on it, like a highland stag. Well, uh-huh. my other main culprit that was the partner to William Alexander, uh, that was their family symbol since they know from at least 1309 because they have a wax seal and the little gizmo that made the wax seals they have those from, from so when he told me that i'm like he didn't know about my theory but when he told me yeah yeah well we pulled up seven forks and a serving spoon or something they had this little stag on the thing i'm like you're kidding us <laughs> you know? yeah you had so, told uh, me a little bit about that before yeah that's a very very telling right there isn't it and there were cannon on it and all that so mm-hmm. And the problem with those shipwrecks, I mean, we absolutely, you know, that was there. And then they were looking at another one that they thought might be a shipwreck um, with that uh, diver, that that diver that they brought in that he's uh, well uh, taught too. I mean, uh, he's ever too. Mm-hmm. I can't name. You probably know who I'm talking about, but actually, he's going to be on the show. We're going to have him on the show. On uh, our, you must be referring to uh, Dr. Lee Spence. Yep. 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 Yeah. He's going to be on Saturday at two o'clock, so you'll have, <laughs> you'll have to tune in. You know, I was thinking he ought to talk to this Robert McKinnon because their lives seem to parallel each other. I'm going to write that down. He dove on. Uh, he dove for the government. He dove for anything that he could make money diving, and uh, and uh, somebody told him about the. They found this wreck it was only in thirty foot of water, and they uh-huh. saw it. And it was clear enough. And they didn't want to spill the beans because he told me treasure hunters don't tell their secrets or they won't get. <laughs> yeah. <them." laughs> so he, uh, 
he uh, went there with this guy and he dove on it and he saw all the stuff and he went to the the ar uh, underwater archaeologist that Mel Fisher used and that guy dated the ship around 1600 and he said it's about 50-50 chance it's either British or Spanish based on the cannons. But anyway, wow. so uh, it's the, the, the man's name is uh, Robert McKinnon. Captain Robert McKinnon. He's a successful treasure hunter. He's involved, involved in million-dollar operations that didn't work and in million-dollar operations that did work. Uh, you know, so he's no joke, to say the least. I got that uh, written down because I want to talk to uh, uh, Lee Spence, Dr. Lee Spence, about that. Uh, and that's that's so that's so funny that you brought that up because, yeah, he's going to be on the show 2 o'clock this Saturday and just uh, the day after tomorrow. Do I remember that he was from Ontario? Or not? Uh, I don't. I that I don't remember now. I don't honestly. I got well. I got my paperwork on. <laughs> I was preparing with to uh, have you on, and I have my uh, notes and stuff on him uh, right over here, laying here somewhere in one of the piles. But yeah, I believe well, so. If Jan he is, right if he is, and uh, Doctor or Rock, Captain McKinnon is just up in Nova Scotia, you can fly from. Toronto to Nova Scotia in about an hour, just a hair over an hour, you know, so I mean, they could get together real quick and share notes. Uh, Absolutely. He, he was so funny because he was so salty. Oh my God. And the night before I was going to meet with him, Rick set the meeting up mm -hmm. and met me at the hotel and said, he's a very salty first person. So if it bothers you, just close out the meeting and mm -hmm. he, dominate the conversation and and he wouldn't tell us where the treasure was so i'm in this two-hour meeting with him and and about halfway through he goes you're probably tired of hearing from me i like to dominate conversation whatever i said are you kidding i said for the rest of the day and listen to you he had, he had such a sailor's way about him and the stories mm -hmm. and stuff. but he wouldn't tell me where the treasure was that's when he because and i wondered i wonder if rick Thought maybe I could weasel out of him something. That <laughs> maybe it might have been his motive there. <laughs> I said, "Well, where's this shipwreck?" And he said, "I'm not gonna tell you." He said, "Treasure hunters don't tell where the treasure is; they won't get it." Mm -hmm. So uh, that was 2019, I believe. Yeah, and then at the end of 2020, and I've surmised maybe the reason for it might have something to do with COVID. But he sent me an email and told me where it was, and. Uh, not the actual GPS location. I was going to say, yeah, but it's location near the mouth, so so many feet out from the mouth of a certain stream, and uh, that was wow. his landmark. So I sat on that for a few months because I thought, well, maybe he maybe he wanted somebody else in the world to know where it was, just mm -hmm. in case. Yeah, I was chosen that person, but I'm not sure that I want to be the man that. <laughs> that has to take that to my grave too. So I thought, right. well, I'm not going to tell everybody, but I'm going to tell Rick and I'm going to let him make the decision of where they right. go. So I, and I told him, I said, I'm a little bit nervous about passing this on. Cause I'm not sure what captain McKinnon's intentions were, but right. exactly. I don't think the only man that knows this. And since you're the kingpin, I just soon you knew it. And then I can yeah. Get about taking any responsibility for it, but uh, anyway, did you have more questions? We'll get um, yeah, I was just going to comment too that, uh, yeah, Dr. Spence is down in South Carolina. He was born, it looks like he was born in Ontario. And oh, again, okay. I've got my notes. Uh, oh, here it is. I just thought uh, if they were close, they could, uh, 
Yeah, we're getting close on time here, so we're going to wrap it up here pretty quickly. But um, yeah, I believe he was born in Ontario, but he lives in South Carolina now. So, um, but yeah, so another one of the questions was, and I think this might, you know, relate to your books. Uh, Janet asked the question, it says, uh, James, which of your books would you recommend for an introduc uh, introduction into the mystery of Oak Island? So to get somebody started as an introduction into this. In, as an introduction to Oak Island, just generally speaking, that would probably be my very first book. But I didn't have okay. my theory. I just looked at Glue's Cap and mm -hmm. uh, Zichmini and uh, the Templars and all that. Uh, I first told, first got onto my theory in, in Oak Island 1632, but I really, it was finding that Freemasons book and the treasure and the first Freemasons and all that. That came about with oak island knights and so that's a very good book and and uh end game was kind of like the icing on the cake of that uh there were a lot of loose ends especially after going up and talking to the team about it and i thought gee i would have got that in that book and then uh but my last two are just uh they're amazing me because of the detail in them and um one of my fans because a lot of people buy all my books and even when i'm at a, at a talk they've been there they were there last year they have the first six now they want to get the seventh you know to have the list of them and but one of those avid fans wrote and said that that was that this last one was the best book i ever wrote mm -hmm. and again it's the one that i've gotten the most uh back from but uh I don't know. Throw them up in the air and grab one of them and start reading. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I, I would start maybe with uh, Oak Island Knights because I go into a lot of detail of, on my theory there. Mm -hmm. and, and definitely the last two uh, because I discovered some really amazing things and I had a lot of help. Thing I had um, uh just a lot of help. People want to help. They want to, they want to be part of the search too, you know, and yeah, they send me something that I can double check two or three other places or whatever. I'm going to insert it in the book somewhere. Mm -hmm. Any other? Um, nope. That was it for there. Oh, and I misspoke. I said, yeah, he was, he was, my, my notes was saying that he, uh, I thought was that he was born in, 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 um, uh, Ontario, but no, he was born in Germany. So, Oh. Uh, lives in South Carolina. So, I might yeah, been, go ahead. I might be thinking about another diver that uh, mm -hmm. has dove in Lake Erie that I saw that he lived in Ontario. I was thinking about going to visit him up there and tell him my stories and see what he thought and see if he wanted mm -hmm. to go to the Oak Island team. But, uh, you know, I, I just want to say about your show, I'm always amazed at the guests you get. I mean, I feel like, uh, team three or four but i mean when you get oh people, not at all laird niven and and uh carmen i mean uh, laird's one of the the most amazing because he's right there and he's he's doing everything official and all that but right. uh yep. um i know that doug doug told me right out he's never done an interview and he's he's i think he he talks well i mean i spent yeah, I think he's concerned that he knows so darn much that he, he's going to trip himself up somehow. I mean, I'm, I get concerned about what I know and I don't, yeah. I know a smidgen compared to what he knows. Yeah, for sure. That might be 
season. And uh, when I did that little free newsletter uh, last summer, I only put out five issues just to keep everybody from going nuts till the show came back on. But yep. uh, interview with Laird, and I had one with Scott, and I had one with uh, uh, I can't remember who else. Oh, Carmen. Mm-hmm. But I that's when I talked to Doug because I've worked a lot with him, and uh, he just said I I just have never done one. He said I just I you know I'm just concerned about what I might say. So then right. when I went last summer he said we gotta do that interview and i said yeah but i'm already done with <laughs> my <laughs> issues I, I just wanted to fill the gap there for a little while right till uh you know t- till the season so yeah. but anyway we would love to have doug on we really would and we completely understand and and, and we have an open invitation with doug and and uh, charles and and several of the guys that have not been on the show but you're right. You know, when you talk about some uh, people like like Laird, uh, Laird has an enormous weight on his shoulders, that man. Um, well, they all do. They truly all do. But Laird, you know, we and, and it's funny because you see him on the show uh, and he's pretty quiet. And, and people oh. talk about him. Oh, he's the buster of dreams because they'll find something and they get all excited about it. And he'll look at it and go, yeah, that's a rock or the lipstick case or something like that. You know, and he'll blow them out. But when we had him on, he was just on here a couple of Saturdays ago, and he was fantastic. I mean, the man has so much responsibility and so much to talk about. And not only that, but he wants to get back on the ball property. He he That was his baby, was the ball property and going through that because that kind of work fascinates him and being able to, you know, he has a different approach. Like a researcher is going to research all this different material to try to come up with a scenario as to what took place on the island, right? So Laird takes a look at the the actual things that he finds, the artifacts, and yeah, lets right. those right exactly, and lets those tell the story of where it goes. So, and so that's a, and you ask him if you ask him, well, what's your theory on this? Uh, no, what is the what does the artifacts tell me? And that's what he, yeah. you know, he said, are you a, are you a treasure hunter? No, I'm not a treasure hunter. You know, I I look for artifacts and I put together a story based upon those artifacts. So. But he truly does have so much, uh, you know, weight on his shoulders, you know. But and again, you know, some of the people that you know, we'd love to have Rick and Marty on. But again, Rick and Marty, they don't, they don't go on these kind of shows. They don't do that, and we completely understand that. So for those guys, someday we hopefully to get them on. We've we Steve Guptel's been on, of course, and we had Ian, Doctor Ian Spooner, on, who was fantastic. He was on just a, a couple Saturdays ago as well, and just a, again, a fantastic. Uh, load of information and a wonderful guy. I mean, he just, he was a lot of fun, but, but no, don't sell yourself short, uh, Jim, because you have, you have done so much research. I, I consider you an A-lister when it comes to being on uh, and being part of what's going on on Oak Island because of well, all the research you've done. It's, it's phenomenal. It absolutely is. And where, where Laird might take a, a bowl and, investigated i take a document and huh? investigate yeah, exactly. like that treasure list that i first published right. in the nights mm-hmm. i wasn't i'd only find it in one book i found yeah. it in that basis book i found it in the privy council minutes of the king and i found it in a court case mm-hmm. that told me this thing's real because uh, nowadays you might have 
people learning about it on the internet and faking something or whatever. But back then, those were three disparate things. You know, Freemasons weren't, you know, whatever. So uh, I try to, you know, double or triple uh, prove uh, most of the documents before I'll yeah. check in. But, and if I can't, I'll say, uh, you know, I'll use a lot of qualifiers, which, you know, a lot of people don't like them. But I mean, if you yeah. can't 100%, and who can say 100% almost about anything for exactly. Years? I mean, we can about four years ago or whatever, you know. So, so uh, I I use like probabilities and maybe and perhaps this was and whatever because how else can I tell the story? You know? Exactly. But uh, yeah, well, thank you for that, and uh, um, I, I look up to those guys so much. You know, I met them all. I, I didn't never met Fred or Dan. I, I felt bad about that. Yeah. Uh, the two oh, times man. there when Dan was still alive. He was too sick to come out. Uh, oh wow! Okay, I didn't get to meet him. But everybody is in real life, just as you see him on the show. Yep. And then my experience of being there on twelve or fifteen days, Gary's a little bit crazier than <laughs> TV. He's yeah. made some pretty wise. Yeah, we've, we've heard that quite a bit about Gary, but and that and that is truly something that. I think it is is part of what has drawn everyone into uh, the, the Curse of Oak Island TV show, uh, part of it. We, we all want to, and I've said this before, we all would love to see them bring up the treasure, some kind of treasure, you know, out of there. Um, but I, many of us, most of us really want the, the, the facts. We want to know the who, what, why, when, and where. But when you watch the TV show, and we've watched it for now nine seasons, now going into 10 seasons, we feel like we know these guys, Rick and Marty and the whole team. And you, you have the sense that they are men or I should say people because we, you know, include, you know, more into this now, Judy and, and the, the ladies that were the archeologists that were working on it, you know, Liz and Miriam and, and them, but people of integrity, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I've talked to people to say, Oh, they're, you know, Oh, them guys, they plant stuff and they go to, no, uh, -uh. that I would never, ever, believe that they would plant anything and that what you see is what you get with the TV show and with them. And so that makes it more real for everyone. I think the fact that they are people of integrity. And back when, uh, Rick's probably called me three dozen times, maybe in the first, but the first time he called me, I about, I was sitting down about fell over, thought I better sit down on the second chair somewhere. But, um, I said, you know what has appealed to me about this show? It's just like I called up my buddies and said, throw your chainsaw and your shovel in the pickup and tell Billy to get that backhoe because we're going to go up and figure everything out. Yep. And he said, that's exactly what it is for us. It's exactly yep. where we're, you know, he didn't say we're the boys with the big toys, but I mean, he was saying, sure, we want to go have an adventure and use modern technology and modern equipment and whatever and, and try to solve the darn thing. But uh, exactly. So um, anyway, they're 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 good people, and they they have to make the decisions that they have to make, whether you know they're particularly the decisions I would make or not. Yeah, do that. That's their job, just like I have my job. And I I guess I'm not going to quit doing it because I've already up to page 42 or something in this new book. Yeah, and I've been uncovering some good stuff and. One thing I like to try to do is present the information in a linear fashion. Mm -hmm. 
like like uh, because some people write very creatively, mm-hmm. but your paragraph and has nothing to do with the very next paragraph. You know, like what? What I can't. So I try to tell the story more or less from the beginning, and that's why I talked about the curse, and then I talked about the yep. proof of the stone, and going through it like that in this latest book. But uh, but that's just the way I am. I'm very linear about everything I do, and yep. so. Uh, and you need people of both kinds because the people that are not linear and are just creative and bounce around, they a lot of times come up with ideas that you never thought of because they absolutely, yeah, they that's were absolutely true. Path. And so I love to hear those opinions too and think, well, how does that fit mine and whatever. So uh, I, I can't take 100% credit because I've had so many people uh, jump in the fray here, including my. Uh, friend doc camels the freemason uh he doesn't tell me any freemason secrets i gotta say that but (laughs) he'll say you know i was looking at what you wrote there and did you ever imagine that such and such and i'm like god darn it why didn't i think of that you know and uh, and then i'll say well i'm gonna look into it believe me i'm gonna look into it so uh, a lot of people helped out but i'm i guess i'm the guy that drove the bus and Mm -hmm. not at the final destination yet, but I was and, thinking a ninth book would be appropriate though, because there were nine Templars, mm-hmm. and nine uh, lovers to yep. Money Pit, and that nine kind of comes up a lot in Freemasonry and Knights Templar and all that. So, in Oak Island, yep. so maybe a number nine will be the absolute magic one. And, and maybe I just can't imagine sitting back on my haunches, though. I mean, see, that's it, yeah. <laughs> so much out there there's too much to tell and and you have and like you said there's too much to talk about and put this all together and what i like about your books is that they're an easy read and easy to understand you put it out in such a way that it's easy for someone like me to read and understand where you're going just like you had just mentioned i can read it and i can put it together and and completely understand where you're going and what you're putting across and that's that i think is the best part of it um you know, for me to understand and get the, get the meaning and the gist of what you're putting out there and the information. Um, and so I, don't forget, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I learned the theory of the segue between paragraphs from my mm-hmm. proof because they'd say, what the heck is this paragraph have to do with that paragraph? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Maybe there's a sentence missing between those, <laughs> two, the connect, the connective tissue. I'm yeah, exactly. I use that word now, connective tissue, because I used it on the show and they use it on the news and everything else. Now yeah. there's always a, a thing of the day, like low hanging fruit was the big thing for a while. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, oh, or yes, no, look. I mean, mm-hmm. with yeah. every character sentence out with that, like what it doesn't even mean anything. It's just a bunch of words. Still, I guess you get your thoughts collected, but. Um, so I always like those kind of the word of the day things, and now it seems to be connective tissue and connective tissue. Yeah, that's good. I like that though. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is what it is. I mean, it, you're you're connecting this dot to that dot to this dot to that dot, and mm-hmm. hopefully in the end, you're going to come up with a. You know what I used to like to do? I thought about this the other day. Is those, you know, the connect the dot things when I was a kid in the books. I would I could tell what it was supposed to be, so I would like I would try to connect the dots in a different way to try to come up with a different and remember doing that. And I thought about it again when Rick said that on that one show about me connecting the dots, I thought, Oh my God, I can remember doing that. And 
I, you know, of course, my mom was telling me, Jim, Jimmy, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You know, and like, well, yeah, but there might be something here, you know. So, yeah, exactly. Thanks for having me on. I know we're just about, time yeah, we're at two hours. Yep. But, uh, it's flown I, by. I, 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 I always want to recommend the very last book I wrote because I'm just so excited about mm. that one, you know, and, uh, so, like I said, throw them up in the air and grab one and start reading, you know, and yeah. maybe it'll, Maybe you'll want to read more. Maybe you'll think I'm a crackpot. <laughs> oh, no. I don't believe so. But I'm going to put the book picture up here one more time. This is the latest one. This is number eight, uh, Oak Island Curses, Codes, and Secret Societies, folks. And it is available on Amazon. Uh, yep. You can go out to Amazon. We do have it linked in the description below. Uh, you can find the book there. And I think it's running about 21 bucks or so, $21, $22. Yeah. Um, but a great, you know, I haven't got it. I, I was going to say a great read. I haven't read it yet, but I've already talked to several people who have Linda included, who said it is a very good read and lots of great information. And Jim, I know that when you get down to this, you know, you said, you know, oh yeah, so nine might be the lucky number. I think that one, even once you have solved, and I'm saying you have solved this whole mystery, there's still going to be more outliers. I think there's going to be more stuff to get to put together. That, and, and, and I talk about them, even if they found the treasure tomorrow, there's still going to be lots of research to be done. Yeah, okay, so they, that's not the end story. That's not the end of it. They found some treasure. Great. Okay. But now it's going to bleed over to all this other information as to why was it there and who brought, you know, it's it's not going to end. It really isn't. And could, yeah. we, could we possibly be changing history of North America? And And Rick called me in January and said, I believe the answer is in the research. Yep. Yeah, you know, and he said that on that show, that very last yep. show. Was, yes, he did. <laughs> um, because, and again, it's exactly like what you said. If you, if you pulled up a trunk of jewels tomorrow, who the heck put them down there? Exactly. Exactly. Figure, you know, and yep. I love doing it. And I, it's one of them things where I lose track of time. So they, they always say, if, if you lose track of time, with what you're doing, you must love doing that. So exactly, yeah. I'm up here like at seven or something at night, and next thing you know, it's three in the morning. I'm like, I can't believe that. <laughs> you know, I'm all over my computer screen, and I'm trying to categorize them. Whatever. Anyway, thank you for having me. Uh, oh, it's been a pleasure. Hello to Absolutely. everybody, there, all my readers, and uh, um, I appreciate it, and I appreciate all the nice comments. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on here today. We're gonna have you back. When you, especially when you get uh, on, you're going to be on Oak Island some more. We just know that. And when you get book number nine done, uh, we got to have you back on and talk about that some more. So thank you so very, very much uh, for being on the show here with us today. And folks, uh, like I said, you can go back and uh, you can go out and get this book and get the other ones too. Don't just stop there. I've only got two. I'm gonna, uh, This one's on the way. And then I'm going to have to go back and uh, and look at some of the other ones and get the other books that he has now a total of eight. So Check those out on Amazon and get those going. And you will get, like he said, pick any of them. And it's going to give you some information that you did not have before about Oak Island and who could possibly have been there. So check that out. All right. Well, so thank you again, Jim, for coming on the show. And thank you folks for tuning in with us here tonight. We really appreciate it. And don't forget, as we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, Dr. Lee Spence uh, will be with us on this Saturday. Uh, at two o'clock, we're going to be with him. And we have a special guest co-host 
Jan Anderson. I'm going ahead and I'm putting it out there right now. Jan's going to make her co-hosting debut with a with me, uh, with Dr. Lee Spence. She has been talking to him quite a bit. So uh, you guys will want to tune in for that two o'clock on Saturday. All right. Again, thank you for being here and you guys have a great rest of your week. We will see you, you. here Saturday. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye.